Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a campaign that I'm hoping you'll follow. Here at Thousand Movie Project, we're all about films from the past. We're also about new movies from the past, and future movies about the past too, and past movies about the future. Anything, frankly, that distracts me from the pinwheeling shitshow fucking pandemic. What I want to point you toward today is an outfit called Alex Filmworks. That's A-L-I-X Filmworks. Filmworks with an X. It's an Instagram profile where you'll find a pair of filmmakers who just launched a campaign to raise money for their new movie. The movie is called Dead in the Water, and it concerns a man in Florida history who ate a mushroom and went looking for the fountain of youth. There's a zombie in it. What I would like, frankly, is for this movie to get off the ground. These filmmakers have been behind-the-scenes supporters of Thousand Movie Project podcast for a long time, and I honestly, literally, professionally, cannot tell you about the lengths that they've gone to support this podcast. So please, if you if you can't fork over at least a few bucks to crowdfund them on seedandspark.com, where you can search Dead in the Water, I ask that you please, please go and follow them on Instagram. Once again, their label is Alex, A-L-I-X, Filmworks, Filmworks with an X, and their campaign is on seedandspark.com, that's seedandspark.com, and once you get to seedandspark.com, you can search the name Dead in the Water. And now, on to the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. Listening, more specifically, to the third installment in the story of how I got this new job at a local pizza parlor, and how it's all going. And yes, the portrait has been digressive, and it's been piecemeal, and it'll go on a bit longer in that vein, but this week, there's a change. Because I am no longer a server at the pizza place. I'm a bartender now. First time in my life. Or bartender in training. I should say. Really, just working a 13-hour shift behind the bar every Sunday and occasionally on Tuesdays, but now the training is formally underway. And though I'm not making good money yet, I am reveling in the experience of being there behind the bar for hours at a time, serving people beer and wine and cocktails with lopsided flavoring and the wrong garnish, because I'm I'm like that meme of the Labrador driving a car. I just, I have no idea what I'm doing. I just the faintest idea of how to pour a drink. I don't know how to mix them or measure them. And it's humbling, for sure, because I'm, I'm really not that great at it. But it, but also, it's humbling just because it's so fascinating. It's a fascinating window into human affairs, and that is what this episode is about. Because while in my first couple months as a server at this restaurant, I picked up snapshots galore of interesting figures, interesting bits of dialogue to chew on and expand upon, nonetheless, those snapshots were really exactly that. They were snapshots. Because as a server, of course, you're, you're going up to people's tables, you're dropping a menu, and then you're walking away. A little while later, you come, you drop off drinks, and then you walk away. It's a very piecemeal exposure to the guests. But if you're behind the bar, on the other hand, the exposure is non-stop. I step over to take a customer's order, and then I take one step back to the computer to ring it in, or one step to the cooler to pour it, and then I stay right there within eight or nine feet of them for the duration of their visit. Which means, in the event that they're here with a companion, or that they strike up conversation with someone beside them, I hear everything. And so what I'll be presenting to you in today's episode is a sort of tapestry of things that I've seen and heard while working at the bar this past month. And I want to begin with a lesson that I learned. 
just got out of work and uh it was a it wasn't a like a double it was a mid-shift so i've but you know i've been standing for like seven hours i've been standing for a long time and something happens i don't know what it is but like after i've been standing for a long time i get like kind of loopy or i don't know what accounts for it but um i was just remembering that um like I'd heard, I'd heard the phone call, the recording of Donald Trump toward the end of his presidency. He um, he called. Fuck, I forget who it was. This is how uninformed I am. I don't know the governor of Georgia or something. He was talking about how many votes, how many votes he needs in order to win. <laughs> and um, you can listen to the call on YouTube. I'm gonna play it here. But he's talking to the governor, and he goes, "Listen, I can't do really a Trump voice. I'll try. <laughs> I'll try." He goes, "Listen." All I need is 11,780 votes. <laughs> I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes. I don't know. He sounds like E.T. <laughs> I don't know why I find it so funny. Votes. <laughs> I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes. I always open the restaurant. I try to get to Coral Gables by 8 in the morning and to do some writing at a coffee shop for two and a half hours before I have to go and open up the store. And the coffee shop that I go to it's in the more residential corner of Coral Gables, which as I've mentioned to you in the past, is like my dream part of Miami. And so while I'm there in the morning in this more residential part, I see lots of youngish married couples. Young couples with their dogs. There's one There's one couple in particular, they're very charming. I, I'm guessing they're in their early 30s or something around my age. And they've got this huge St. Bernard that they bring to the coffee shop. It's a delight to see. He's very charming, very friendly, very social. The whole environment is as cozy as you could imagine. But then at around 10.15, it's time for me to walk to work. And the walk is about a mile long. Because while the pizza parlor is still in Coral Gables, it's in the more businessy district. And so when lunch comes around and, and we get our normal tide of guests for two or three hours, pretty much everybody who comes into the restaurant is dressed for the office. And that's what the three men at my bar look like on this scenic, breezy Tuesday at lunch. We've been open for about 20 minutes and nothing much is happening. Just these three guys lounging, eating slowly, looking at their phones. Then the hour turns to noon. The big hand on the clock leads us five minutes along the curve. And that's when a woman comes in from a building across the street. She's walking at a quick, discreet bustle with an office lanyard around her neck. And she is very short, maybe five feet tall, and, and really skinny. And she's wringing her hands together in a way that isn't nervous, but it's definitely shy. She is, at a glance, an adorable person. And I don't mean that in a, in a condescending way, but she's just, you know, she's short, she's skinny, and she's got these big blonde curls, and she's wringing her hands together and smiling really wide once she approaches the bar and takes off her face mask. She's just one of these people who is adorable. At first, I think she's going to ask me where the bathroom is because she isn't sitting down, but rather just standing there at the corner and waving me over. But instead of asking me where the bathroom is, steps up on the curb down at the foot of the bar, and she leans toward me, across the counter, as though to whisper a secret. And when I lean forward to meet her halfway, she asks me with a kind of like bashful wince. She says, do you have anything silver? And I lean back like, 
coins? Like nickels? And she covered her mouth with the back of her hand and then she laughed into it. And I couldn't tell if that was like a COVID consideration, like she was trying to keep her particles to herself, or if it was just part of her natural bashful demeanor, the way that she laughs. And she says to me, no, not, I, I should have been clearer. Do you have any silver tequilas? She kind of whispers it at the end. And I tell her, yeah, actually, it's funny you should ask that. I just learned this morning that, yeah, the tequila we have is, is Patron Silver. We've got a, a new bottle right now. And she lights up and she says, oh my God, great. Can I, can I get a double? And I said, yeah, that's, you want like two singles, of, two singles of Patron in, in one cup. And, and she nods. And so, and so I turn and I get the measuring device and I pour out a pair of 1.5 ounce servings. And then I turn and say, oh, did you want, did you want that on the rocks incidentally? And she goes, no, I want it neat. So I finish the drink and I go and I hand it to her and it's, it feels, it feels weirdly plain. It's like a plain, simple glass with three ounces of clear liquid, no garnish or anything. And it's like $25. For $25, I feel like I should garnish her drink with a dance. But anyways, she lights up at the sight of the liquor, thanks me so much, and then asks for her check right away. Says she's got to get back to the office soon, doesn't want to have to chase me in the event that I walk away. So I turn around, take two steps toward the computer, I print her check, and when I turn back to hand it to her, the tequila is gone. She pounded it. Three ounces of Patron Silver, a beverage so expensive, so sharp, so robust, that it sends warning to werewolves with its very name. Pounded here, ten minutes past the midday hour on a Tuesday, by what appears to be a terribly shy woman of maybe a hundred pounds. One hundred pounds and three ounces, to be exact. I hand her the bill, she gives me her credit card, I swipe it, transaction's done, she signs for an $8 tip and walks out, crosses the street, goes right back into her office, and you would think nothing was different. And after that encounter, the first thing that came to mind was, like, what fucking nerve-shredding business must be transpiring down in her office that she needed to hustle down and across the street and fucking slam three ounces of Patron in the middle of the day? Because as she was walking out, I did notice one change in her demeanor. She was no longer wringing her hands. Now, I go on thinking about this woman for a little while, but in the course of the day, I end up seeing and hearing so much other stuff that I get pretty well distracted. And the matter of the tiny, stressed-out woman with the big golden curls who pounded a midday triple shot of tequila gets filtered away. Jump ahead a few days, and we're looking at a calm, breezy Sunday morning. I'm about to hit the restaurant for a 13-hour shift behind the bar, but I've stopped beforehand at the usual coffee shop. I'm sitting at a corner table with my notebook, my coffee. I'm looking around and thinking my thoughts and minding my business. And suddenly, hey, look, here comes that youngish couple with the St. Bernard. Um, the same couple I was telling you about earlier. They're in here. The dog's walking obediently alongside them on his leash. And, and I'm thinking I, that I might want to breach the social fabric finally and ask to pet that dog. So I look up at the couple and I see um, that the woman holding hands with her boyfriend or her husband, uh, it's... it's I can tell from the top half of her face and her hair. It's the woman from Tuesday. The woman who slammed three ounces of Patron in one minute during her lunch break. And for a second there, I'm excited to see her because I'm like, like I'm in with the regulars now. I'm one of them. I want to jump to my feet right away when I see her. And I want to be like, hey, I'm your bartender from the other day. My name is Alex. Remember me? But then, uh, let me not do that. It seems a bit eager, don't you think? So no, fuck it. I decide to just sit put, not say anything, and... Uh, why bother? I can enjoy the dog from a distance, so that's that's what I do. I look at the dog, and I look at the foot traffic through the window, and I, and I look around the coffee shop, and when I turn and look back at the dog, I happen to make eye contact with the woman, and she goes completely rigid. She turns away and goes with her partner to the counter, and they place their order. She's got her head tilted down the whole time, and then when it's time for them 
to walk to the part of the cafe where your order is served up, she tries to find a discreet way of walking sideways so as to keep her back in my direction, so as to hide her face. And then, somehow, for the first time, it occurs to me, anyone who goes for three ounces of tequila at a family restaurant at noon on a Tuesday is probably up to something. And maybe the thing that they're up to is just the drink itself. The drink, maybe, that they're not supposed to be having. And so, I don't say anything to this woman. Of course, her body language is shouting, like, please don't talk to me. I haven't seen that woman at the bar since. But I started this anecdote telling you that there was, there was a lesson to be gleaned from this encounter, or aborted encounter. At least for me, there was. What I'm realizing as a bartender, somehow for the first time, is that a bar can, in some respects, be a place where people don't necessarily want to be seen. Or they don't want people to know that they were there. It makes a, a very sudden and vivid kind of sense to me that my life is quite unique and that there's basically no time of the week where it is suspicious of me to be at a bar. I am a marginally employed bachelor, writer, bartender. If I'm sipping a beer, if you see me sipping a beer at a bar at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday, no one's really going to think twice. Kind of because I look the part. In fact, you probably only have to talk to me for a few minutes before like comfortably surmising, you know what, this guy drinks beer in the morning. Most people, though, if you were to catch them drinking a beer early on a weekday, you'd be like, don't you have responsibilities? <laughs> so, I've, so I've settled on a rule for myself. I shall never approach anyone in the street, especially if they're with someone, and introduce myself as a person who remembers them from a bar. I'm glad to say that I've never done this before. Nothing terrible has ever come from my doing this to date, but I think it's just best that I keep it that way. Dancehall Disco Democracy. Hello, my name is Georgia. The only thing I like more than democracy is the synthesizer. Let us play it, the synthesizer. A reedy-limbed, muscular man with a sun hat comes into the bar on Sunday, and, and his hair is gray at the temples, and he sits down and he says hello to me, says it with a pointed tone, like he's saying hello to me. Not the casual greeting of someone who's here to be polite with me on their way into a cocktail. He said it with the inflection and the eye contact of someone who is looking to connect, to make conversation. And I am all about it. So I mirror his enthusiasm and I say hello right back to him. And he makes a remark about the weather, which down here in Miami was a nice breezy thing that week. And as he was talking about the weather, I noticed that his voice was remarkable, a deep baritone radio kind of voice like something out of the 40s and his greeting and his appraisal of the weather are so forthright and bold and he's, a, he's such a commanding presence because he's tall and muscular he's somehow wearing a sun hat without looking like an idiot and i'm thinking for a second you know this is an this is an impressive dude this dude has presence once he's finished with his remarks about the weather i go dude you could be a politician in like some high office and he goes, what do you mean? And I tell him what I just told you. I say, well, you're tall, you look strong, you've got this, this radio voice, you assert yourself in conversation. You would strike me as a convincing candidate, like if I saw you on a, on a presidential debate stage somewhere. And he chuckles, ha ha, good natured and everything. But then he puts his elbows on the bar and he leans forward and he says, why would I want to be president though? A president can't do anything. A president hasn't been able to effectively alter the American political landscape for years now. And you know what it goes back to? You know what I think it goes back to? I think it goes back to Ronald Reagan. Reagan, I don't know if you know this, he invested more money in our military than all the previous American presidents in history combined. No kidding, George Washington. And then it struck me and I thought, oh, okay, he's crazy. So we chat for a little while and he orders a salad and a Diet Coke and then he sits there at the corner of the bar, 
making small talk with two other couples. Turns out, the man in the couple directly beside him was in the Navy. And the woman of the couple directly beside that couple was also in the Navy. Small world. And so they go on talking in the most animated way. Their conversation buoyed mostly by our agitated man in the sun hat because he wasn't in the military. He's just a casually avid student of military history. So avid a student, in fact, that he doesn't alienate members of the armed forces. In other words, he talks like a military expert who knows not just military history, but knows and has known soldiers. So they're talking and talking, telling stories, and at this point, the restaurant is getting really busy. And this is like one of my first shifts at a bartender, so I have to run all over the place. I'm pouring drinks that I don't actually know how to make. It's, it's a shit show, which means that I can't pay attention to everything these people are talking about. But it is clear, nonetheless, that they're all having a good time. They're having such a good time, finally, as I'm bustling past our, our military historian at one point, that he stops me. He touches my elbow, and he leans close to my ear, and he says, I, uh, I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna try to do his, like, dignified radio voice. I'd like a cosmopolitan when you get a chance, but also, I want you to know, I have a really low tolerance for alcohol. I don't, you don't have to worry about it, but just, I'd like to pay for the full drink, but just, just don't put a full shot of liquor in there. Maybe don't even put half a shot of liquor. Frankly, just a, a tiny bit. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. You're afraid of what'll happen to you if you drink alcohol and you're asking me to bring you alcohol. Cool. I'm very comfortable with this request. Thank you for making it. So I walk away like I'm going to go make his drink, but before I do, I go to my manager, who's over at the back of the restaurant at, at the expo line helping with the pizzas, and I go, hey, I got a question. It's going to be weird. Bear with me. He says, what's up? I said, okay, I don't know if you noticed, Dr. Jekyll over there at the end of the bar just ordered a cocktail, but then he told me with, like, fear in his voice that he's really cautious about drinking alcohol, and he wants me to make the cocktail with, like, less than an ounce of booze. Is that okay? He says, Alex... Don't overthink it. If he wants a quarter of a shot, pour him a quarter of a shot. Did you tell him you are going to charge him for the whole thing? I said, yeah, but that's not really what's worrying me. And he says, so what's worrying you? And I said, I'm afraid he's going to pull on a poncho and booby trap the bathroom, man. You can't, you can't tell from here, but the dude's energy, it's, he's like a coiled spring. He's being friendly and everything, but I don't know. I, like, I'm afraid he's going to go off or something. And my boss says, well, if he does go off, we'll handle it. So anyways, I go back to the bar, and I pour the guy a Cosmopolitan, and like, I'm, I'm looking around the bar as I do it, so no, because I don't want anyone to see me giving this guy, like, a quarter of a shot of vodka, because I don't want anyone to be like, Now you listen here, bartender, that man ordered a proper cocktail, and you're coming up slim on the liquor, what gives? I just don't want any drama! This is something that I, like, I never think about when, it, back in the past, I would think about becoming a bartender, I never thought about, like, these little delicate moments, and like, how I'm supposed to handle them. Anyways, I make the drink. I walk over to him, I set the drink down, he thanks me, and I take like one step back and I stand there watching as he takes a sip. And I'm terrified on the one hand that he's gonna go, Pah! you call that a Cosmo? <laughs> I'm terrified I mixed it wrong and he's gonna send it back. But, turns out he likes it. Mikey likes it. We're gonna finish up the story in a minute, but I wanna mention in passing that I went to Red Bar a few days after this encounter, and I sat with a guy who's actually like a real, like he, he works across the street from Red Bar, and he's like a, like a master bartender. His name's Carlos, he's super cool, and I was telling him about this moment and about my anxiety at making shitty drinks, and he goes, listen, even if you make a shitty drink, nobody wants to fuck with the bartender. You're their best friend in the world while they're sitting at that bar. If you fuck up a couple ingredients, 99% of the time, they're gonna drink it anyways. And subsequently, I have gotten the idea that Carlos was pretty much right. Because I'm sure that I have fucked up a couple cocktails at this point, like dramatically. 
and nobody's really given me shit about it. What they do give me shit for is when I fuck something up about their food order. Then they're as, like, as exasperated and condescending as you can imagine. Dude! And I'm sorry about the digression. I'm gonna get back to the thing about the guy with the cosmopolitan and, and the other painful lesson that I learned bartending this week, and then we're gonna put a bow on this shit. But dude, look, there was this couple, there's this couple that comes into the, okay, transition sound. There's a couple that comes into the restaurant on a regular basis. Very sweet people. They're probably in their mid-50s. And they wore simple gold crosses around their necks, matching jewelry. Folks in simple clothing, well-mannered, quick to laugh, and inviting of small talk. But the husband has the vibe of a man who needs more people to speak with. This is another thing that working at bars has taught me. There is an epidemic of middle-aged men, men who are so lacking in conversation in their life, it's practically a vitamin deficiency. And I really don't think it's just that dudes get chattier as they get older, although that definitely does happen. I think it's that they get lonelier, even if they're surrounded by family, which is a whole other thing we can discuss some other time. Let's stay on point. We were talking about people at the bar giving me shit whenever I fuck up something to do with their food order. And then I started telling you about this Christian couple. They come in on a regular basis. Now the woman in this couple is, is personable and seems way more comfortable in her skin than her husband does in his. She doesn't have to be constantly asserting herself, telling me a factoid or whatever, you know, roping me along with some endless story. And I realize, yes, this is the pot calling the kettle black. I know, I talk a lot, I digress. I'm trying to tell you about this extremely chatty, pedantic, God-fearing, middle-aged, empty nester who comes into my restaurant on a regular basis and lectures me on things. And I'm kind of freaking out now as I'm describing him to you because I'm realizing he's probably what I'm gonna be in the future. But the lecturing element is the one that I want to focus on because it isn't that this dude's chatty, that, that kind of blows unwanted breath on my neck. It's that he's a little bit pedantic. Anyway, he tells me little factoids about famous entrepreneurs or bits of trivia about how the city operates its traffic lights. He's the kind of guy whose dispensation of information is always prefaced with the same remark. You know, he says, what people don't realize is that, and then he goes on and, and says whatever it is, the people in question the people who don't realize, being, of course, everyone but him. Everyone but him doesn't realize the thing that he's about to tell you, and so you should listen closely. He's a wonderful dude. I'm sorry I get so negative when I tell these stories. What happens, I think, is that I find the one little moment that hooks my attention, and I just dissect the shit out of it. Like, let me tell you a nice thing that I've also noticed about this older couple. I've noticed that they are easily among the most warmly communicative of all the couples I see in this restaurant. And they talk to one another all through their visit. They seldom pick up their phones. She always drinks two glasses of Merlot and he always drinks two glasses of Yingling. They are lovely people, discreet, respectful, tasteful. But the other night they're here, they're eating, they're having a good time and we're being friendly with each other. We're trading small talk and whatever. And when I pop by their table at one point to ask if everything's okay, she gives me a warm smile and a thumbs up, but he, well, Tisk tisk. He tilts his head downward, looks up at me over his glasses, and beckons me down to my knee, down right on the floor beside him. Now, there is a global pandemic going on, and the position to which he's beckoning me is not what the World Health Organization would call optimal proximity. But nevertheless, he wants me down here at his level, on bended knee beside his plate, the plate to which he points with a calloused finger, the plate upon which he then uses his fork to oh so delicately isolate away from his half-eaten meatball two nearly, and I know this sounds like bullshit, I'm not bullshitting, two nearly microscopic brown beads. These colorless beads are wet. And he says, you see this right here? And he looks at me over his glasses and I say, yes, yeah, I see them. What are they? And then he winces at me and he says under his breath with what looks like agonized enunciation, he says, these 
are unchewables. And I said, okay. And I left it at that because I'd never, I'd never heard that word before, but obviously I know what he means. I just, I wanted to just nod at him in crouched silence for a moment so that he hopefully would absorb the absurdity of the moment. He did not. He goes on to tell me at length, not great length if you're looking at your watch, but I'd say about 40 times the amount of time this crisis warranted, about the relative ubiquity of unchewables that he finds in poor quality meat, and how the meat that we have here appears to be of good quality in his experience, but you know, mistakes happen, and he just feels that I should direct this matter to the manager so that it might be rectified at our soonest convenience. And I, I don't know if this man was drunk off of ego or the unconditional love of Christ, but if he'd asked me for another blue moon at that point, I would have said no. Okay, back to the man in the Cosmo. So remember where we were, there was this guy at the bar, this, this military historian type. He's not good with alcohol, and I've just made him a borderline virgin, cosmopolitan, a cocktail that he sips, and he likes it. Mikey likes it. I'm, I'm, I'm relieved to see his delight for a moment. I'm relieved, and then I'm like, fuck. <laughs> what if he wants another one? Because yeah, drinking, drinking just a half ounce of liquor is a good way of circumventing your susceptibility to whatever it is that happens to you when you consume an entire ounce of liquor. Unless you have two of them. The timing of his cocktail proved fortuitous, though, because the two couples with whom he'd been chatting, and who'd been there for a while already when he arrived, they were getting their checks by the time I served it to him. They were ready to take off. And when they did finally leave, after a prolonged stretch of goodbyes, our man with the Cosmo was only halfway through his drink, and he was left there alone to finish it. And, and there's a thing that tends to happen in Coral Gables, which I'm convinced is the exact vibe of a small town. Uh, what happens is, if you're at a restaurant, you see one table gets up after finishing their dinner, and within the next 10 minutes, you'll see two tables get up. And 10 minutes after that, the whole restaurant is empty. And so when these two couples abandoned our man at the bar, suddenly the whole restaurant seemed to have calmed down. And so I was, I'm hanging out at the bar, he's not distracted, and I'm, I, I can get a better look at him now. And listener, his eyes halfway th into that drink, are bloodshot. When he finally asks me for his own check, I, I bring it over to him, and I tell him, you know, that he did a great job of sustaining conversation among all these people at the bar, and that I appreciated his doing so, because I had to be running around, and despite my bartenderly neglect, I honestly do think that he incentivized these people to hang out and luxuriate in the vibe and enjoy themselves, and he smiled at this, and then he said to me, in a muted way, but without slurring, he said, yes, I'm a pretty good conversationalist. And then he paid up, he tipped well, and he bailed. And on his way up from the bar, he paused, and he put on his sun hat, and he gave me a straight look, and he thanked me for crafting his drink just the way he likes it. I'll leave it there for now, as far as keyhole portraits go, because what I think those two encounters illustrate, the one between the daytime drinker of Patron, and the one with the man who, who needs some help in, in policing his intake, is that there's a certain amount of trust that people place in a bartender that I hadn't really considered before this. And I don't mean to try and like ennoble the profession beyond reason, but I think it's safe to say that the woman out with her partner and her dog, who had come in for a big powerful drink in the middle of the day and then vanished back into her office, maybe I'm totally off the mark in guessing that she's lying to her partner about being on the wagon, and maybe I'm totally wrong to think that she was even nervous to be looking at me in the coffee shop. But let's say that I'm right that this theory I've just spun for you is exactly what's going on. If that's the case, then she's gonna trust her bartender not to come up to her in public and allude to the fact that she was there, that she was doing that in the middle of the day. And as for the second guy, and the second lesson, well, I felt bad when he left, giving me that brief, friendly look 
and the remark about having about my having made his drink specifically to order, because while he is a friendly guy, and most likely he was just giving me, you know, an innocent acknowledgement about our understanding, a kind of verbal wink, what I'm afraid happened, and what I'm embarrassed to think might have happened, is that maybe... Maybe that was actually kind of an apologetic remark. Like, maybe I was showing apprehension in my face when I handed him his drink. I'm worried that maybe I, I wore my concern too openly, and other people saw that I was trepidatious in both preparing and serving his drink. When he took me aside and whispered that request into my ear, he clearly didn't want other people to know the specifics of his order. And why not? Probably because if you mention that you practice some kind of caution around alcohol, it leads people to speculate, to jump at conclusions about why this man is so cautious, whether because of addiction or he's on antidepressants, whatever it may be. The fact of the matter is, one's relationship to alcohol can be a very private thing. Same as one's relationship to food. Surely we've all hidden some indulgent piece of food for fear that someone living in our house would see us eating it or, you know, some, some cosmetic treatment that we hide. But I do feel good, ultimately, about the fact that he made that request, I honored it, I fixed him his drink, served it, didn't make any show of it, or tell anybody, except for my manager, and except for you, which is a, okay. Obviously, I kept it to myself, obviously, I'm here at a microphone telling it to you, but I justify it by saying, like, you don't know who this guy was. This is another issue, so let me transition it, and then we'll go. There's a tricky ethical component to the podcast now, because it's therapeutic for me to come here and to tell you these things that happened to me. And it's totally fine if what I'm doing is just telling you about my day, right? Because that's my lived experience and I'm free to make whatever art I please of it. But now this thing that I call my day, my job, is laden with little voyeuristic keyhole insights into the private lives of strangers. Insights that are interesting to me and, you know, I render those these people anonymous. I add a detail here and there that might throw you off. The man in the hat might not have had a hat. The, the, the couple with the crosses around their necks, maybe they were wearing yarmulkes. Or, as I have indeed seen, they were, you know, the couple that is distinct for the fact that they both have shaved heads. But sometimes the details are real, and I've left them in because I feel that they contribute something to the portrait. And yet I'm wondering if that in itself is a kind of betrayal of the bartender-patron confidentiality that I'm referring to. Which is not something that's like sacred and written on a dock or something... I don't know. Anyways, I'm glad that you're here with me in what I'm hoping is a less than scathing communion. Because when we speak again, in Pizza Story Part 4, I'm gonna tell you about something I did, something that my curiosity and nosiness compelled me to do, that I think lands us in more of a gray... Uh, more of an ethical gray area. 